Go with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. You can be seated or you can stand, whichever one. Getting slack this morning. I do have some outlines for you. Our main focus this morning will be verse 10 as we talk about salvation and good works. But to understand what he says in verse number 10, we have to back up and read verse 8 and 9 again to get the context. And let me just say that any time you study God's Word, you need to understand context. There are a lot of people that go and they'll pick this verse and they'll pick this verse. And when you begin to take this verse and this verse and this verse, you can make the Bible say anything you want it to say. And that's what a lot of people do. And that's why we got so many different doctrines out there, and that's why we got so many people that believe the Bible says this and believe the Bible says this. And so you've got to take context. You've got to take what verses come before a verse and verses come after a verse, at least what the chapter says. And then what the entirety of the book says. And then what the entirety of the Bible has to say about a matter. And so context is important. So Ephesians chapter 2, let's look beginning at verse number 8 through verse 10. And then our main focus will be verse number 10. It says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. And then look at verse 10. For, that little word is important. Because, is what it means. Verse 8 and 9, By grace you're saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, so that no man can boast. Because, this is why we're saved by grace through faith. This is why it's a gift. This is why we can't boast, because we are His workmanship. Created, notice this, created in Christ Jesus. I, I told you several weeks ago, if you wanted a homework assignment, read the book of Ephesians and know how many times it talks about we're in Christ Jesus. Everything we have comes to us because we are in Christ Jesus. We are faithful because we are in Christ Jesus, meaning that even when we aren't faithful at times, we're faithful because we are in Christ Jesus. That when we aren't perfect, when God sees us, He sees perfection because we are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath, notice this, before ordained that we should walk in them. Father, I pray today that you would help me to expound your word in such a way that would be honoring and pleasing unto you. And according to your word, you've promised that your word would not return void, but it would accomplish that which you have sent it to accomplish. 
And I pray today that you'd open the ears and hearts of your people to receive. And I pray today that your word would have an impact upon our lives. And I pray when we leave today, we will be changed and transformed. And so now, God, anoint this place with your presence and with your power and anoint your servant to say what needs to be said. And we'll give you praise and glory for all that's accomplished. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. And amen. When it comes to the subject of salvation and good works, there are two very serious errors that plague the church. Number one, you've got one error that teaches that we're saved by faith alone, but we have to maintain good works in order to maintain our salvation. Under this view, if you fall into sin or you stop doing good works, you'll lose your salvation and you can never really know for sure whether or not you are saved. According to this view, you have to keep living a good life, doing good works in the hope of gaining eternal life. In other words, you're saved by faith, but somehow you have to add good works to it in order to earn brownie points with God and merit salvation. And if you ever do anything wrong and can't measure up to perfection, then somehow God kind of cuts you off and it's all over with. Under this teaching, under this view, a person can never say what Paul said in Ephesians 2, 8, by grace, you are saved. You can never know if you have it or not because you'll never know if you've done enough. The other error, which is more pervasive in evangelical churches today, is that good works have no connection whatsoever with salvation. This view teaches that since we're saved by grace through faith alone, a person can believe in Christ as Savior, but there may not be a life of good works to follow. A person can pray the sinner's prayer and profess to believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior, but later he can profess to be an atheist and live in sin, but he'll go to heaven because he made a decision to believe in Jesus as Savior. I've listened to sermons on YouTube, but I've heard pastors preach that a person can be saved and never bear any spiritual fruit and still be a Christian. I've heard them say that. However, this view fails to realize that when God saves a person, they receive a new nature which results in a changed life. Here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17. We know it. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Paul says when you are saved, you will become new. You will be changed. In other words, you can't keep living the way you used to live. You're going to live a different kind of life. But the view that says, hey, you can be saved and not bear any spiritual fruit says, hey, God can be your Savior, but He may not necessarily be your Lord. But I don't believe that's what the Bible says. I believe if He's going to be Savior, He's also going to be Lord, and you're going to bear spiritual fruit when you're saved. Amen? You see, this view divorces repentance from saving faith and teaches that saving faith is simply believing the facts about the gospel. That if you believe in Jesus, that He died and rose again, that's all it takes to be saved. And listen, I believe that, hey, all you got to do is believe in Jesus and you're saved. It's by grace through faith. But I believe He changes your life. And you bear fruit. But they say, hey, all you got to believe and you may never bear fruit. And your life may not change a whole lot. You may not be a disciple. 
but you can still go to heaven. They hold and say that submitting to Christ as Lord of your life may follow salvation, but it's not necessary to be saved. I would say that both of these views are wrong. And that's what Ephesians 2.10 is dealing with. Paul is explaining the previous two verses, verse 8 and 9, where he has said that we've been saved by grace through faith apart from any works on our part. It's all the gift of God so that God alone gets all the glory. And so now in verse 10, Paul tells us this. Here's kind of the main idea. Genuine salvation is entirely of God and it inevitably results in a life of good works. Salvation is all of God and it will lead to a life of good works. But that raises a question before we go any further. Doesn't Paul and James conflict with each other? You see, that's the argument that a lot of people like to make. That Paul says we're justified by faith alone apart from the works of the law. And it seems to contradict what James says in the book of James. Let's listen to what Paul says. Romans 3.24 Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 3.28 Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Galatians 2.16 Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Galatians 3.11 But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident. For the just shall live by faith. So Paul makes it, claim, makes it clear, he makes it plain. We're justified by faith alone, not by the works of the law. It's pretty clear, isn't it? But then James comes along and he says, faith without works is dead. Look at James 2.14. What does it profit, my brethren, though a man say he has faith and have not works, can faith save him? Seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? James 2.17, even so faith, if it has not works, is dead being alone. James 2.26, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Paul's saying, hey, we're, we're justified by faith alone without works. James says faith without works is dead. It seems they're opposing each other. And that's what a lot of people say. But I would argue that these men are saying the same thing from different angles to address different issues. They've got a different audience that they're speaking to. And that's why you've got to understand context. And that's why you've got to understand who they are addressing. You see, Paul is attacking the Pharisaic idea that our good works will commend us to God. He's writing to people that think, hey, I can earn brownie points with God, and if I do more, God will love me, and somehow I'll merit salvation. He argues, though, that no one can ever be good enough to earn salvation. And so Paul says that God justifies guilty sinners through faith in Christ alone. But James was attacking the view that saving faith doesn't necessarily result in good works. And he shows that genuine faith always produces good good works. And that's precisely what Paul was clarifying in Ephesians 2.10. And so hear me. Our salvation is entirely of God and so are the good works that follow 
salvation. Hear what I'm about to say. God has ordained the entire process. You see, we can't claim any glory for ourselves in our initial salvation, and we can't claim any glory in our good works that follow. God is behind the entirety of our salvation from start to finish, and He gets all the glory. It's all Him. You can't boast about the good that you do because God ordained it all. Amen? And so this morning, I want to give you four truths from verse number 10. Number one, genuine salvation involves a new creation that is entirely God's doing. What did Paul say? He says, we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. That word His is emphatic in the Greek, underscoring the point that Paul has been making throughout chapters 1 and 2, that our salvation was ordained by God from eternity and that we had nothing to do with it. We were dead in our sins, but God raised us from the dead. You see, just as God created the universe out of nothing by the word of His power, God created us in Christ Jesus by His power. I want you to hear me well this morning. God doesn't save a person to leave them as they are. He saves them and He changes them. Here's what one commentator said. God saves us not merely to save us from the wrath we rightly deserve, but also to make something beautiful of us. We are His workmanship, which translates the ancient Greek word poema. The idea is that we are His beautiful poem. The Jerusalem Bible translates workmanship as a work of art. End of quote. You see, we are God's masterpiece. We are His work of art, His handiwork, His creation. And you see, this is why salvation is not a result of works, because only God can create. You see, you've got to understand something. As a child of God, as a Christian, as a believer, you're not a refurbished version of the old you. You are a new creation. You're a brand new person. You're a new man. You're a new woman. And guess what? Only God can do that. You can't make yourself new. You can't change your nature. Only God can do that. And that's why salvation is entirely of God. You see, here's the thing. Have you have you ever seen those dog shows on TV? And they cut their hair and they paint their nose and they put ribbons on them. But here's the thing. You can take that $2,000 dog and put him out there in the yard with all of his pretty, pretty bows and pretty nails and sooner or later he's going to start acting like a dog and start digging in the yard. Why? Because he's a dog. Amen? And you don't know why people sin? Because sinners. And we can't change our nature. But God can change your nature. And that's why we're His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Only God can do that. You couldn't do that for yourself. I couldn't do that for myself. But God, who is rich in mercy, wherewith He loved us. He did it when we were dead in trespasses and sin. He made us alive. Amen? It's entirely of God. His masterpiece. It's as though God put you on His easel and He took out the paint and began to work in your life, forming you, fashioning you into what He wanted you to be. Amen? It's God's doing, not our own. And so we can't take credit for it. And you might say, preacher, you've been emphasizing this too much over the past two weeks. It's only because Paul's been emphasizing it too much. Paul's been talking about it over and over again that it's God and God alone. 
Why is it that we have so much problem talking about God doing His work in our life? Why is it that we want to make much of ourselves and little of God? Listen, I know where God brought me from. I know where I was headed. And God intervened. And I'm going to do my best to make much of Him. Because without Him, as the song says, I would be nothing. Amen. Without Him, I'd be like a ship drifting out to sea. Lost. And on my way to hell. I'm going to make much of Him. I'm not going to make much of myself. I'm not going to make much of what I can do. Because without Him, I am nothing. And I can do nothing. I'm a new man. I'm a new creation because of God. You see, God knows how prone we are to try to take credit for salvation. And if we can't take credit for salvation, we'll take credit for the good we do after salvation. We'll brag about our good works. We'll brag about what we give. We'll brag about those we help. And God says, you can't take credit for any of it because there's nothing good in us. We're His workmanship. Can I tell you, there's no tree out there that God's created that's bragging about how beautiful it is. There's no flower that sprouts out the ground that can boast about how beautiful it is. And guess what? There's none of God's child that can boast about how good they are. Amen? We can't take credit for any of it. The entire process is from God from start to finish. Number two, genuine salvation inevitably results in a life of good works. Again, there are those that believe you can be saved and not have any works to demonstrate your salvation. You can pray a prayer, believe on Christ, and never have any fruit. But I believe the Bible teaches you're going to bear fruit. Amen? But Paul is clear that once you were saved, good works will be the result of your salvation. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said. We've been clear upon the fact that good works are not the cause of salvation, but let us be equally clear upon the truth that they are the necessary fruit of it. John Calvin, he said, Christ justifies no one whom He does not at the same time sanctify. Amen. That when God justifies a person... God will sanctify a person. God will work in a person's life. Amen? Now I want you to hear what I'm about to say. We aren't saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. Let me say it again. We aren't saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. Good works are the evidence of salvation, not the cause of it. Good works aren't the root of salvation, but they are the fruit of salvation. Don't confuse those things. And so if a person claims to be saved but there aren't any works or change in their life, it should be questioned whether or not the person is truly saved. Remember the parable of the sower? Only one produced fruit. I would suspect that the first three that the seed fell in on, they weren't genuinely saved. Only one produced fruit. Only the good soil. And that's the thing. We have to be very careful about calling people saved because they may not be saved. 
This is just because somebody runs to an altar, prays their prayer, sheds some tears and jumps up and joins the church and hangs around for a little while. You better be careful calling them saved because they may not be saved. Because they can wither away the deceitfulness of this world and draw people away. The Bible talks about sheep and goats, church. Wheat and tares. Just because everybody professes to be saved don't mean they are. They, listen, there's people who gladly receive it with joy, but listen, the things of this world draw people away. Don't mean they were saved. Something better comes along. Listen, they get, they get a better deal somewhere else. Listen, genuine faith perseveres. It endures. They that endure to the end shall be saved. Isn't that what your Bible says? And so we got to be very careful about who we call saved and who we, and all. Listen, people can have religious experiences and never be born again. I don't want to get too far sidetracked, but we got to be very careful. Listen, people can reform their behavior and never be born again. Listen, salvation results in good works, but let me just say this, good works alone doesn't mean a person's saved. I mean, let, let, let's just make it clear. Good works alone doesn't mean a person's saved. Listen, there's lost people out there who do a lot of good in the world. Oprah Winfrey, she, she does good things. But I don't think she's a born-again believer. She gives a lot of money to help people. I don't think she's a born-again believer. Just from the statements she's made that's come out of her mouth. And there's others who give a lot of money to charities. But, I, but you, you listen to how they talk, I don't think... They're going to make it to heaven. It's a matter of the heart. And only God knows the heart. But I believe that if you've had a heart transformation, it will lead you to live a good life. It will lead you to bear fruit. And let me just say this, the most important fruit is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, kindness, self-control. Amen. Faithfulness. Jesus tells us that we'll bear fruit. In warning about false prophets, here's what he said. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15 to 17. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. It makes it very plain. You'll know them by the fruit. Paul makes the same point in Titus 1.16 in warning about false teachers. Look at it. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him being abominable and disobedient and to every good work reprobate. Throughout the book of 1 John, he, he emphasizes the same point of talking about false teachers. Look at 1 John 3, verse 7 through 10. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that commits sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this, is, for this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. For his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. 
In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. You see that? That if a person practices sin, is unloving, they're not of God, your life will be changed. The book of James, chapter 2, verse 14 to 26, makes the same point that genuine saving faith manifests itself in good deeds. And so if a person claims to have faith but has no resulting works, his claim is suspect. If a person is living the same way that they lived before they say they were ever saved, you ought to be suspicious of their claim. Amen. If you see no fruit, see no good works whatsoever in their life, see no change of lifestyle, their claim is suspicious. Number three, go to something about this. God prepared these works before He saved us. That's something to think about, isn't it? But that's what the text says. God prepared these works before He saved us. Notice what Paul says. Paul says concerning these good works, which God hath prepared before ordained. What does that mean? Paul is saying that God not only predestined our salvation, but also the works that follow. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. And we're going to talk about this, uh, I don't know, next week, maybe two weeks to come. Election, predestination, things of that nature. And then I'll really get some of you mad with me. But according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Some people have a problem with that, that verse. But it says plainly that He has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world. People have a problem with the fact that the Bible talks about God's election and God's predestination of people. But those are words that are in the Bible. And if in the Bible, I believe we ought to talk about them. Amen? I mean, and, and let me just say this. God chose Abraham. He chose Noah. He chose Israel. God chooses. He's God. And we, we have problems at times with God's sovereignty. And let, let me just say this. I don't understand why people have a problem with God's sovereignty. God being God. Because it messes up with our free will. And here's the thing. You've got free will. I can make a choice. But let me just say this. If I'm not supposed to be at the Jefferson Church of God, listen, God can get me where I'm supposed to be. I want to get too far sidetracked with this, but listen, God can get me where I'm supposed to be. And i got Bible to prove it, Jonah. I'm not going to Nineveh. And Jonah made decisions, didn't he, of his own free will, that he wasn't going to Nineveh. He bought a ticket to go to Tarshish. Well, who sent the storm? God. And when the storm came, Noah didn't have to pray like all the pagan people on the boat was praying because Noah knew why the storm came, didn't he? He said, I'm the reason the storm's here. He says, if you want the storm to sit around and throw me overboard. And then a great fish come along, but who, who, who sent the fish? The Bible says God appointed the fish. And after three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, Jonah finally prayed. And then what happened? Fish beat him out. And where did Jonah end up going? The men of God didn't mess up Jonah's free will, did he? 
But Jonah went to Nineveh, did Why? Because God's God's purpose was fulfilled. So here's the thing. You can make decisions, but listen, God's purpose is going to be fulfilled because God knows what you're going to decide and what you're going to do. But listen, God knows what he wants done, and he knows what you're going to do. And he'll orchestrate things to still get what he wants done based on knowing what you're going to do. God's in control. And we have, we have problems with God being God. Amen? We have problems with God being God. We want, here, let me, I, don't, I don't want to get too far sidetracked, but here's the thing. We want to bring God down to our level, and we want to understand Him. You'll never understand Him. You'll never understand Him. You'll never figure Him out. text says he's chosen us in before the foundation of the world. I mean, God saw you, God saw me, God saw every one of us before he ever created this world. He saw us. And he made a choice. The Bible says, make your calling and election sure. The Bible speaks of God's elect. And we have issues, but the Bible uses these words. And if it uses these words, we've got to talk about them. And so, here in Ephesians 10, 2.10, this continues the same idea of God's sovereign plan. It does not stop salvation, but it continues, it also includes a life of godliness leading to final glorification. Look at Romans 8.29. I've got, I've got to move quickly. But for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that we, he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Did you see that? He also did predestinate, predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. See, God doesn't save us and leave us to live the Christian life as we choose. God's got a plan. God's got a purpose. And according to Paul, God has ordained it. God's predestined it. And God has predestined and ordained that you be conformed to the image of His Son. Isn't that what it says? He predestinated to be conformed to the image of His Son. And so guess what? That means God's going to use whatever means necessary that you be conformed to the image of His Son. That's why we got problems. That's why we go through trials. That's why we go through times of suffering. So that we can be conformed to the image of His Son. Because God got a plan. And so why, does God, so why does Paul add the phrase that God prepared these works beforehand? Let me give you two applications. If God not only planned my salvation before the foundation of the world, and He also planned my good works, I have no grounds to boast in anything that I do for Him. If he ordained these works beforehand, I can't boast of anything I do for him, Brother Tommy. Anything I accomplish for God, anything I do for him, I can't take credit for because he planned it long ago. And some people, and like some, you mean he planned what I'm supposed to do? Yeah. The steps of a good man are ordered. Another, another translation, another way to say ordered is established by the Lord. 
And then what it says? It's ordered by the Lord. So I can't take credit for my life. I can't take credit for what I do. You can't take credit for what you do. Why? Because God prepared works for you to do. And here's the thing. Knowing that God planned good things for us to do, it should humble us. Because you can't take credit for it. Because God planned good things for us to do. But here's a second application. The fact that God prepared these works shows that we shouldn't engage in our projects and our good deeds and we should ask God what He wants us to do. Knowing that God has a purpose and plan and things that He's prepared for us means we should say, God, what do you want me to do with my life? You see, teachers out there today say, hey, dream your dreams, plan your goals, and do what you want to do with your life. That puts you in the driver's seat, not God. If God has before ordained good works for us to walk in them, we should be saying, God, what do you want me to do? But that's not how most of us live, is it? I'm going to chase my dream. I'm going to live my life. I'm going to do what I want to do. But can I tell you what Saul did after God met him on the road to Damascus? Lord, what will you have me do? And when God saves you, the first thing you ought to say is, God, what will you have me do? But no, that's not what most of us do. Most of us keep living our life the way we want to. We keep living for self. And we say, God, will you bless what I'm doing? No, you need to say, God, what will you have me do? If God is Lord and we're His servants, we should follow Him. If He's leading, we should follow. Amen? Look at Ephesians 5, verse 15 to 17. See then that you walk circumspectly. That means wisely. Not as fools, but as wise. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Wherefore be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. You've got to understand what the will of the Lord is. We're living in difficult times. We're living in evil days, Brother Paul. And he says, you need to understand what the will of the Lord is. Understand what God wants you to do. Listen, we don't have time to waste. Let me move on. Number four, final point. Although God sovereignly ordained these good works before time began, we are responsible to walk in them. Although God sovereignly ordained these good works before time began, we are responsible to walk in them. Paul says God prepared these works beforehand that we should walk in them. Harold Honer explains the balance in the Bible knowledge commentary this way. The purpose of these prepared in advance works is not to work in them, but to walk in them. In other words, God has prepared a path of good works for believers which we will He will perform in and through them as they walk by faith. This doesn't mean doing a work for God. It instead, it is God performing His work in and through believers. Here's how Paul explains it in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Let's get it. It says, Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, let me just pause for a moment. A lot of people quote that verse right there. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And that's where they stop. Don't judge me. Don't point your fingers at me. I've got to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. And that's, and that's where they stop. Remember I told you earlier you need to keep things in context? 
you can't stop with verse 12. You've got to go to verse 13 to understand what he's saying. And here's what he says. For. And what I told you what for is? Because. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because. The reason you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because it is God which works in you both to will. That means desire. And to do His good pleasure. So I'm not just out here trying to work out my own salvation so I can do my own thing. Paul says you've got to work out what God is working in you. Why? Not so I can do my will, but so I can do His will. Isn't that what he says? Not so I can live my own life, but so I can live what He wants me to live. So I can do His good pleasure. He's working in me to give me the desire and the ability to do whose pleasure? His pleasure. And you see, I I believe that's why some of us have so many problems. Because God's trying to work in us to get us to do His will, and we're still trying to do our own thing. And so God said, I'm trying to work in you to change you to do my good pleasure, and you're not getting it. So let's go around this wilderness one more time. Let's go around through this trial one more time. Maybe you'll get it this time. Amen. Because try, again, he's trying to conform you to the image of his son. So God's working in you to get you to do his good pleasure, his good purpose, his will. And you've got to work it out. He's putting this desire in there, this ability in there to do His purpose. Notice something else about walking in good works. Walking in these good works which God has prepared for us implies a lifelong process. You see, once we are saved, the direction of our lives should be to walk on the path of obedience to God in everything. Also, walking in good works doesn't mean that we doubt in them in our spare time when we don't have anything better to do. Listen to me. We don't volunteer to serve God when we get a little extra time on our hands. But rather, we serve God and it becomes the focus of our lives in every day, in every situation. You see, there should be no division between the sacred and the secular or the Christian. I'm amazed at how many times people want to try to compartmentalize their faith. They want to try to serve God on Sunday, but when they leave the church house on Sunday, they don't want to think about God until they come back the following week, and they want to try to cut off their faith and compartmentalize it and keep the two separate. Listen, there's no difference, and there's no division between the sacred and the secular or the child of God. That means you serve Him in the church house, and you serve Him at the workplace. When you're with your family, you serve Him, and you love Him. Amen? Every Christian should be seeking to serve God in accordance with His gifts and desires in every situation of life. Let me say it this way. There should be no such thing as a part-time Christian. No such thing as a part-time believer. And there's no such thing as retirement for Christians except for when God calls you to heaven. Amen or oh me. No such thing as retirement until you take your final breath and you go to meet Jesus. That's it. That's your retirement plan for serving Him. You go to meet Him. Until then, with every breath in you and every ounce of strength, you serve Him. 
You live for Him. You do what He's called you to do. You use your gifts for Him. Amen? Until God takes us home, we serve Him and we walk in the good works He has called us to perform. If God has saved you by His grace, He has saved you for a life of good works. And let me just say this. You might get a little upset with me. If you're not engaging in what God has called you to do and not using the gifts that God has called you and, and given you to use, you are self-centered and you need to repent and you need to find out what God wants you to do and start doing it. We're supposed to walk in the works that God has ordained us to do. And if we're not doing it, it's selfish. It's selfish. And we need to repent. And say, God, what do you want me to do? In closing, two applications. First of all, make sure that you're a new creation in Christ. You need to ask yourself, have you truly been saved by grace through faith in Christ alone? Here, here, here's the fact. You can't work for God until, for, until God has first done a work in you. You can't truly work for God until God's first done a work in you. Secondly, if you've been saved, the focus of your life should be, Lord, what will you have me to do? As I've already mentioned, Paul asked that question immediately after his experience on the Damascus Road. Look at Acts 22, verse 10. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there it shall be told thee of all things, notice this, which are appointed for thee to do. Notice that. God had already prepared beforehand Paul's future ministry. Again, we have a problem with God's sovereignty. God planning things. But God told him, I've already appointed what you're supposed to do. I just believe God's big enough that God's already appointed what I'm supposed to do with my life. Some of you might have a problem believing that for your life, but I believe that God's already got a plan for my life. That God already knows what I'm supposed to do. Now, I've got to walk by faith, I've got to look to Him, and I've got to find out what it is I'm supposed to do. Because here's the thing, God don't give us the big picture. That's why you walk by faith and not by sight. God gives you steps, and you've got to trust Him. But I believe God's got a plan. And I believe God knows how to get me where I'm supposed to be. But here's the thing. Paul had to learn God's plan. God didn't show Paul everything immediately. Paul had to learn. He had to walk by faith. He had to trust God. There were times Paul tried to go certain ways and the Spirit restrained him from going certain ways because that wasn't God's plan. Listen, there's been times God has restrained me from going certain places and doing certain things. Why? Because it wasn't God's plan. God will close doors if it's not what He wants. Because God's got an appointed plan. So Paul had to learn God's plan. He had to walk in it. And guess what? You and I have to learn how to walk in God's plan too. Because God's got something that He's ordained a life of good works, a life of bearing fruit. And if we'll look to Him, God will show us what He wants us to do. And we can walk in it. Amen? Would you stand with me?